propagandas would like to apologize for <laughs> statements made that don't do not reflect the political opinions and the and the moral sensibilities of the host i don't know if we're gonna keep that fucking viper bit in and us bitching about how people think we're bad <laughs> i don't know you i could think... just delete the first episode or edit that fucking shitty bit out nah man i think i think we said it we fucked up we got to apologize for it like it was truly we just kind of like i think i think most of it comes from the fact that like Hey, this guy's kidnapping and possibly murdering women. I, <laughs> I do. I can't help but laugh at that. I don't know what to fucking tell anybody. The fact that it's Viper, the fact that it's the guy from the you know the 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 million meme reaction pictures of y'all cowards don't even smoke crack. When I, you say he might be kidnapping and murdering people, I cannot not laugh. It's it's similar to like the um, <laughs> Kai, the traveling hitchhiker. Do you remember him? He he had no. like a. Oh, man. Okay. He was the one who, like... Is this the guy, the van guy? I don't know if he was the van guy, but he, he had an axe, and he had he, he's famous for being interviewed. He's like, and I hit that guy like, smash, smash, smash. So I f***ing ran up behind him with a hatchet. Smash, smash, smash. But he, uh, he was just this traveling hitchhiker, and someone tried to assault him, and he fought him off. And he was like a viral hero, and then he uh, murdered someone. <laughs> and then he beat a guy to death intentionally, and everybody was like, oh, no. Yeah, yeah. And so there's something, maybe we're laughing because we're uncomfortable. Maybe you're laughing because you find it genuinely funny. Of just like, a meme, a meme has suddenly become a criminal. Yeah, it's that uh, that, that Twitter it. thing. It's the milkshake duck or whatever. Milkshake duck, right? Yeah. And that shit is it's genuinely funny. Yeah. If you don't find it funny, sorry, I'm not going to stop laughing about it. <laughs> uh, but please leave us a five star review. Yeah. Um, please listen to the podcast. Uh, if you if you haven't heard the story that we laughed at, got a lot worse because they uh, about five days later they discovered a, a body in uh, Mr. Viper's house. No, so no, 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 no. The, the day we recorded that episode. Oh, Jesus. They well, found... you know, the lathe of heaven uh, spins and spins, <laughs> right? And it, uh... While we're touching base on things we talked about last week, one thing I did want to say that uh, uh, regarding the Texas National Guard taking over Shelby Park, um, the federal government has asked the Texas National Guard to leave the park and please let Border Patrol, uh, you know, the federal Border Patrol do its job. Texas has refused to leave. They're still occupying the park. And in a sad turn of events, a woman and her two children have passed away. Um, they were in crisis. And the National Guard was very slow in um, doing anything about it. The, the federal officials were made aware of it and tried to get into the park to do something. And Texas National Guard just kind of stymied everything and because of this um people are now dead and uh it's fucking despicable and uh i i'm at a loss for words i again like i said last week i'm not an expert on immigration law but there's got to be a better way than this and i definitely think that they need to let the federal government do their job because they are fucking it up texas consistently fucks up the border and, and fucks up the humane process of dealing with immigration in any way, shape, or form. 
I think the only difference between this and the kind of standard fare of border policy is that it's being looked at under a magnifying glass because all of a sudden the, the Texas state has come out and asserted itself over the feds. The idea that this shit is not going on with CBP is wrong. I mean, what's unsurprising is that this went exactly as predicted so quickly, right? This just immediately turned into exactly the worst, the worst case yeah. scenario. The thing that you would yeah. expect to happen happens within a week of, of, of seeing it happen. It's really sad. It's um, it's so fucking grim. I don't know how to how to pivot into something lighthearted. Uh, I mean, I, I, if you if you want to stay with the grimness, like it's it's just by the way, and it's a reassertion of another thing that we said um, last time, which is that this is the desired outcome for people that support um, that support that policy, right? If you if you if you want Minutemen to be uh, stationed at the border and you want them yes. um, interdicting. Uh, illegal immigrants, those people are the same people that want those people, whether they can admit it or not, they want them to die, right? So this is a success. And I guarantee you that as immigration becomes a thing that people project other political frustrations onto, this is going to increase as well. If you want to get really grim, at some point, this will be a norm where it's not even going to be worth commenting on. Woof. Yeah. Well, um, on a lighter note, we have another story of a Gulf Coast state deciding to buck the authority of the federal government or attempt to buck the authority of the federal government. This is a case in which the state kowtowed to the demands of the feds. Uh, Alec, you have a story on the uh, Louisiana Congressional District. We got an L for the feds. We got a motherfucking dub for the feds. So um, so Louisiana got sued back in 2022 um, for those who follow districting politics, which has got to be nobody, right? <laughs> it's got to be some of the most boring shit on earth. Uh, but they got sued by the feds um, for uh, for gerrymandering, essentially, right? The, the, the idea being that the amount of districts left with a majority uh, black constituency was not representative of the amount of black people, right, that live in the state, and therefore they're disenfranchised, redistrict that shit. Um, so they got an order to redistrict, and literally yesterday, on Friday, um, the uh, state legislature dropped a new map of the redistricting of Louisiana. We're not getting a new district, we're just redistricting, and boy, oh boy, does this motherfucker look crazy. Um, at first, uh, I was actually, the uh, the parish I live in, that's Calcasieu Parish, um, right now we're in District 3. Um, at In a previous map, we were going to get shifted up into District 4, which is actually Mike Johnson's district, uh, the Speaker of the House, away from Clay Higgins' district, which would break my heart because you know how much, you know how much I love Mr. Higgins. Um, right now, actually, on this map, my parish is getting cut in half, and I'm staying on the side of Mr. Higgins and everybody in the west of the district towards the Texas border. They're getting shoved off into Mike Johnson's district. Um, the... If if I mean if, if somebody wants to see a wild fucking gerrymandered state district map, um, the, the district six, which is the the kind of um, newly shifted over uh, majority uh, black district, um, reaches from Shreveport to Baton Rouge, which for those who are not familiar with Louisiana geography is like over halfway across the state. It's like from the like the top of the sock on the the boot or the the, the shoe, whatever you want to call Louisiana. From like the back top of the sock all the way down to like, um, 
the arch of like the foot. It is something that you know, being in Houston, Dan Crenshaw is one of our representatives, and his district goes from Demontrose neighborhood all the way up to Kingwood, and it looks crazy. It, it like people have compared it to the uh, shape and form of his eye patch. It like looks so bananas, and I thought that was like as bad as it could get. And then I saw this new district of Louisiana. It is. It's beyond the pale. Uh, uh, we're going to find a way to... We'll either link it in the show notes or something, because you have to see what this district it's looks It's pretty like. fucking cool. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, it, so it, it, there's a silver lining here, right? Uh, Louisiana is going to go from 5-1 to one Republican Democrats to basically 4-2 to two Republican Democrat. They're, going to, they're definitely going to drop a seat, which basically is now kind of representative of the, the racial makeup of the state, if you can kind of crudely assign political affiliation to race. What it doesn't do is it doesn't fix the, the fundamental kind of gerrymandering of the state, right. because Louisiana as a state, right, if you just go by straight party affiliation, is uh, actually a majority Democrat-leaning state at like I think I think Pew Research puts it at like forty three percent versus forty one Republican. Um, so technically, I mean, we should be split fifty fifty, which we never will be. Right. I think it's very interesting that the map as it stands now, after uh, what is it, uh, 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 Governor Landry? Yeah, that's the brand new. That's also yeah. a brand new governor. This is basically kind of like the first thing that's happening over Landry, uh, Republican governor taking over from the Democrat uh, John Bell Edwards. So Governor Landry is going to sign this into law very shortly. And what I think is very interesting is that this map was Louisiana's concession to the federal government because they knew if we do not do this, uh, the courts are going to draw their own map, and we'll have to go along with it. And I think I think that's the thing is that that map could be even worse, right, for Republicans. Yeah, I mean, Mike Johnson's having a hell of a week. Mike Johnson did not want this to happen, and Louisiana Republican legislators moved forward with it anyway. And on top of this, like he's having a hard time getting a uh, border deal through, and I, I believe that hardline Republicans are threatening to oust him, and so we may have another ouster of Speaker of the House. And Democrats are offering, like, concessions in order to get uh, Ukraine funding. So he's he's stuck between a rock and a hard place. And on top of this, one of his friends, his colleague, Representative Graves. Yeah, Graves is the representative in District 6 that's now been redistricted to to a majority black district. And he is the one who's going to be basically losing his seat, presumably. Yeah. Um, Yeah, Mike Johnson's pissed because this, I mean, it is literally giving up a seat in Congress that they now possess. And the House has a pretty slim majority as it is, as I understand. It, it, it does. Yeah. I, I think Graves is being made like a sacrificial lamb here. Graves famously was a Democrat before he became a Republican. He's also probably the least connected of the five Republican uh, representatives. Somebody's got to go. It appears to have been uh, Graves. The way you uh, were talking about this when you pitched this story to me was about... Um they all got together and drew straws. <laughs> Graves is also apparently uh, descendant from Lebanese Christians, so I, I like to think that Mike Johnson is is secretly a, a member of uh, Hezbollah, and this is secretly like a sectarian war between the Shia Lebanese Front and the Christian Lebanese. All this speculation, Alec, I have to say, kind of inspires me to talk about my story that I want to bring to the conversation today, um, which is going on in Texas. Uh, this is from... The Texas Observer, a left-wing magazine here, and it, the article is called La Gorda Loca Goes to Court. La Gorda the Loca, fat, crazy lady? Yes, 
Yes, it is. It is slang for uh, <laughs> uh, it's it's basically the crazy chubby lady. Um, and my kind of my kind of woman, brother. <laughs> so this is happening in the Texas border city of Laredo, and uh, La Gordi Loca is her real name is Priscilla Villarreal, and boy, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that right. Um, it's a name I saw consistently growing up, and yet to this day I still don't know how to pronounce it correctly. Uh, but she is a citizen journalist in Laredo, Texas. And she's currently involved in a lawsuit with city officials of Laredo. She is stuck in a traffic jam in Laredo, sees some cop cars, and she's known for going on Facebook Live, covering the crime beat of her town, and just truly community journalist, posting videos and, and interacting with her fans. In a city of 250,000, she has 200,000 followers. So Holy shit. Yeah. Now, if I could ask, is this like... Uh, uh, QAnon Facebook mom kind of energy, or is this uh, not really what are we working with here? This is this is someone who uh, tells it like it is, basically. Um, I'll get into that a little bit. She's not really QAnon. She's just focused on crime in Laredo. She's not speculating nationally, just focusing on Laredo. Uh, and I, 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 I'm not on Facebook, so I have very limited access to some of her content. But so she's stuck in. A traffic jam, she sees some cop cars, she texts a source of hers who works for the police department. Police department tells her, hey, somebody jumped off a bridge, they're an employee of a government agency, we're going to try and get this traffic jam cleared up, blah, blah, blah. Uh, LaGuardia Loca goes on Facebook Live, shares the name of the person who died, shares the details. I think eight months later, the... Uh, DA of Laredo signs a warrant for her arrest for improperly using government information and at this point LaGuardia Loca is now suing and this has been kicked up to the 5th Circuit Court of Appeals that's based in New Orleans and um, she's trying to say that like hey these people infringed upon my civil rights as a journalist Um, they're trying to threaten me intimidate me and silence me as a citizen journalist now, the police are using the argument that, like, hey, you have used insider information that was not uh, 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 legally disclosed yet. But it raises some very interesting questions in that, one, what's interesting to me is, like, the police gave her this information. She, she operated as a journalist. If she were working for the New York Times or, or, or uh, the Texas Tribune, even, she would not have been arrested. In fact, when she was arrested, she turned herself in when she heard about the warrant, but a bunch of cops pulled out their phones and started recording her to, to make fun of the fact that she records them. And it it raises some very interesting issues regarding free speech. It definitely has the potential to set a dangerous precedent on limiting conflicting narratives with the official government narrative. And this is very much the cops lashing out against people who criticize them. But however, I, I would be remiss not to mention some of La Gordia Loca's mistakes. She, because she has no official journalism training, she kind of goes off the cuff. And she her, a lot of her videos are expletive laden. And she's had to apologize and walk some stuff back. So she basically doesn't pass the sniff test of journalism to maybe a prosecutor. Yeah, so... We have some stuff here where um, 
2017, she created a panic in Laredo, uh, saying that there was a gas shortage, which was not true. She broadcast unsubstantiated allegations about government officials, so there's some libel issues there. And in 2016, this is directly from the article, a judge ordered her to pay nearly $300,000 to a daycare that had alleged she had defamed a company as part of a default judgment issued after Villarreal failed to appear. So, she's got some issues, and then I have to include this. I'm just going to read it verbatim. Villarreal has been mired in other controversies. In 2020, she issued a public apology, albeit including her trademark expletive, after she broadcast racist commentary during a video of a Webb County Sheriff's Department uh, deputy arresting a black man. Sitting in her car and using her phone to take video oh, no. through the window, Villarreal added imagine dialogue between the two using offensive stereotypes. I have not looked this video up, <laughs> but I, hmm. yeah, it, it's, it's, so she's not perfect. Who among us? <laughs> Who among us is? I'm imagining something in my head that is. We don't need think. another apology. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think that it's important that, um, you know, there can be consequences for free speech, but you should be allowed to say you should have free speech. And so I think it's important to remember that, like, yes, this lady makes a lot of ethical issues, but that's not violating the First Amendment. And I think that's very, very important to this case. And there's a quote here from um, one of the judges within the Fifth Circuit. He's a Trump appointee, James Ho. He's a former Texas Solicitor General. And he said that the First Amendment means anything. It surely means that a citizen journalist has the right to ask a public official a question without fear of being imprisoned. Yet, that is exactly what happened here. Priscilla Villarreal was put in jail for asking a police officer a question. That's true. And he goes on, indeed, even, uh, well, no, I'm cutting this because <laughs> James Ho then, uh, in his opinion, quotes um, Die Hard 2. Oh, wait, leave it in. What the fuck? All right. Hell yes. Indeed, Ho wrote, even Captain Lorenzo, the stubborn police chief in Die Hard 2, acknowledged. Now, personally, I'd like to lock every expletive reporter out of the airport, but then they just pull that freedom of speech expletive on us, and the ACLU would be all over us. Captain Lorenzo understood this. The officers in Laredo should have too. So, because these officers did not watch Die Hard 2, they are now getting involved in a federal lawsuit. The bizarre implication here is that you're supposed to have an implicit understanding of what information is um, is sensitive to the police and what is not. Right. And that seems pretty fucking ridiculous, but I mean... Now, this law that they're using to... Uh, that they use to arrest her was originally written to kind of, like, prevent information leaks regarding government contracts. Like, it had its purpose, and it is being used in a very different way. And the reason I wanted to bring this story up on this podcast is uh, about a month ago, I gave a talk about propaganda and somebody asked me a question at the end of it. And I had to ask her to clarify the question because this, this is how ridiculous it was. Is there a link between how corrupt a government is and how susceptible its people are to propaganda? And I should have just said no. But the reality, of, like, I needed to give a bigger explanation is that it doesn't matter. Like, no one is genetically predisposed or culturally predisposed to believing in propaganda. Propaganda is much more effective when you have no alternative sources of information. 
if LaGuardia Loca's lawsuit failed, if, if the people who arrested her and signed that warrant are granted government immunity, then that just sets a really dangerous precedent for there's only one narrative that matters, and it is the government's narrative. And so whether or not LaGuardia Loca got the facts right, whether or not uh, on other stories, you know, I, I think it's important that LaGuardia Loca is still allowed to report and is still allowed to do what she does. And it's very clear that because she has uh, reported on crime in the past and reported on crooked police in Laredo in the past, this is retaliation through and through. And um, because she does not have the financial backing or a legal department of a major publication, it's, it's easy pickings for them. And uh, I truly hope that it goes her way. And if there are any updates, I hope to share those on future episodes. Yeah, to the to the question of is propaganda more effective? Is, is so the question is is propaganda more effective if the government's corrupt? Yeah, no, it it are the people more susceptible to propaganda if their government is more corrupt. I mean, if anything, the opposite's true. A state that is openly corrupt through and through makes propaganda less effective because nothing is believable, right? I mean, that's it's kind of like, uh, you know, take the the case of the Soviet Union. Citizens of the Soviet Union would attest that nobody believed what was in Pravda because it was so nakedly untrue, right? There's not even there's not even a kind of kernel of truth that you can attach uh, a kind of naive belief to. It makes me think of like during the Trump administration, we just kind of got accustomed to the fact that like, yeah, he lies all the time. Yeah, the, the, the case seems like it's, it seemed like a whistleblower case at first, but you're right. It's just um, far more kind of devious even than that, right? Because if citizens cannot talk about um, the experiences of their lives or their interaction with, um, with you know, especially like local government, especially law enforcement, if you can't openly talk about those things and you have to be kind of muzzled under the threat that maybe some of that information is uh is what related to an investigation or somehow classified or somehow affects something and is is in some way secret then i mean freedom of speech doesn't matter at all right there there can be no use for it if that is not its use to discuss matters of the state yes and on that i really want to share a couple of paragraphs from this article about that uh, here we go. Villarreal's case is part of a pattern of reports in recent years of police and other public officials using threats, searches, and arrests to intimidate U.S. reporters and critics, according to monitoring groups like uh, the Committee to Protect Journalists. A spate of high-profile incidents occurred in 2023. In February, the Supreme Court refused to review a ruling that gave qualified immunity to officers who had arrested an Ohio man for a mocking parody on Facebook, ending his lawsuit. A New Hampshire man who was arrested after criticizing his town's former police chief is also suing. In August, a journalist at the Marion County Record in Kansas filed a lawsuit against police officials who who served a search warrant and seized business equipment from the newspaper office, alleging the raid was done to silence reporting. The 98-year-old newspaper owner's home was also raided. She died of cardiac arrest a day later. I remember this. In October, Mm -hmm. police uh, in Alabama arrested an editor and publisher for printing leaked information. That same month, officials in a Chicago suburb ticketed a reporter for contacting municipal officials directly rather than through the city spokesperson. This is happening. And even in Texas, there's a law that passed uh, uh, the TCEQ, the Texas Commission of Environmental Quality. Um, Now, if you report too much to the TCEQ, if you file too many complaints, the state can fine you. 
They will fine you money for complaining too much about the lack of environmental quality in your neighborhood. I live in fucking Houston. We are we have a cancer cluster in North Houston. And if you complain about it, the the state has a right to just like send you a fucking bill for running your mouth. <laughs> for annoying them. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah. Things are things are really looking up in the great United States. This place sucks. We, we want to talk to the manager of the United States. Let's uh, let's go ahead and get into our, our our last little chunk here. We're talking about propaganda of the U.S. government. There's a big foreign uh, uh, event, well, foreign conflict going on right now. And Alec, I know dick all about it. Can you explain to me what's going on in Yemen and what is the U.S. narrative about what's going on in Yemen? So the Houthis, Ansarullah, uh, this is a, uh, a primarily Shia rebel group in um, the state of Yemen. Uh, they have, uh, for um, about a month and a half now, been uh, kinetically interacting with uh, ships that are sailing in the Red Sea, right? They, uh, they famously uh, took over, they famously landed on and captured uh, basically a, a seagoing car ferry called the Galaxy Leader at the end of November, and then uh, moved on to um, shoot rockets, uh, basically, and attempt to board several other vessels um, with the explicit purpose of uh, shutting down commerce to the Israeli port of Eilat and then uh, stopping um, commerce of Israeli ships generally, right? The, the Galaxy Leader, for instance, was um, has admittedly at least partial Israeli ownership. And, and they've, they've made statements, although uh, not with a tremendous amount of effort, uh, evidence, that the ships that they've um, attacked or attempted to attack after that were headed to Israeli ports. The Houthis in seizing ships on their border in the Red Sea have basically stopped traffic through the Suez Canal, right, which is about a fifth of global trade. Um, those ships, um, if you're not aware, those ships are having to basically go around the Horn of Africa instead, which adds, uh, I think, in the, it's some, somewhere in the realm of two weeks to, to shipping times. Um, and that's, that's a significant amount of time and money. It stops ships from docking at the southern port of Eilat in Israel to some level. Uh, because they're unwilling to uh, go through the Red Sea, and secondly, uh, basically a bunch of shipping companies have stopped have stopped trafficking the Red Sea at all uh, because of the effects on on uh, on shipping insurance, on insurance rates for ships. Um, so the Red Sea has effectively has has on some level been shut down for uh, international trade, which is just a huge cost um, oh, to, to basically to everybody involved, right? With the idea being that. Um, that that then they'll uh, you know put some pressure on on the West broadly uh, maybe the United States um, to put an end to um, the Israeli occupation and bombing of Gaza. I do think it's very interesting that um, so the main uh, uh, actors in the bombing of Yemen are the U.S. and the U.K. and when uh, the Houthis did start taking ships and uh, blockading the uh, Suez Canal. Uh, I believe at least Keir Starmer, and he is not the the um, the prime minister, but you know Keir Starmer, the head of the Labour Party of the UK, and other prominent UK politicians. The moment that ships started being taken into Suez and shipping started slowing down, they were calling for a ceasefire, and they have since gone from ceasefire now to, well, we're helping the US bomb the hell out of you. <laughs> Like, clearly a ceasefire is not coming, and instead of applying more pressure on Netanyahu and his government, we're just going to take out the, the inconvenient cog in this uh, 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 military-industrial machine. 
Yeah, I think for a brief moment, um, the, the the kind of Houthi plan worked. There was just a general freak out um, in the in the world of um, of sea transit, yeah. and uh, and and yeah, you had people openly calling for for an end to this because uh, because goods weren't going to get to where they were uh, they were destined. Yeah. So in response to this, uh, the United States launched um, Operation Prosperity Guardian at the end of December of 2023. Um, in an attempt to have a bunch of friendly countries basically participate. Basically, this is just the United States, right? There's a long list of countries that are participating, but it's it's it, it's um, U.S. ships, it's U.S. planes. Um, I think there might be a small U.K. presence, but all the other ones, it's like, uh, you know, we sent we, we might send like five officers to come help you out at some point. Uh, last week, this escalated. So the United States began uh, bombing the Houthis. The U.S. military basically began uh, bombing the Houthis uh, in in what are stated attempts to um, destroy um, destroy uh, missile batteries, which the Houthis have been using to attack, uh, which the Houthis have been using both on these merchant uh, vessels um, in the blockade and and firing at Israel uh, since the since uh, since November at least. And this has resulted in the deaths uh, in Yemen of uh, both members of uh, the, the Houthi militia of, of Ansar Allah and of some civilians. Um, notably, uh, notably for defenders of Ansar Allah and the Houthis, um, during all of the operations of uh, of the blockade, they 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 failed to or prevented the death of any of the of any of the sailors involved. Both when they took the Galaxy Leader and uh, maybe by chance, right, as they fired missiles on uh, on container ships, nobody has died. Uh, but you know, the United States started killing people basically from day one, um, as soon as we started uh, uh, bombing them in response. The Biden administration removed uh, Ansar Allah, the Houthis, from uh, a designated list of terrorists um, at, right as Biden took office in 2021. I, I think literally maybe the day of his inauguration. Uh, and now they're basically back on a different, a slightly different list of, of global terrorists um, now um, so that uh, uh, material support of them is now illegal um, and can get, uh, you know, American citizens put in jail. So why were they removed from the terror list in the first place? I, I think the idea was that the Biden administration was going to be a kind of a, a, a kinder, softer, more conciliatory conciliatory administration than the than the Trump administration. The, the, so that's an extension of of the Yemeni civil war, which uh, started in 2014, which the United States has actually been involved in since the Obama administration. Right. They, during the Obama administration, they started support of uh, basically the group that was that the Houthis were fighting against, which is the the official government of Yemen, which is a, a Sunni led uh, government uh, backed by Saudi Arabia. Um, Trump inherited the. Um, the support of the Saudis in that conflict, and it continued throughout um, his presidency. And then, the and then during the Biden administration, the, the kind of humanitarian effects of uh, Saudi bombardment and a blockade became so severe that um, the media broadly associated the war with uh, with the Trump administration. So I think the idea was that as the Biden administration came in, they were going to kind of relax that conflict and and get away from the bad press of. Six figures of of dead uh, uh, Yemenis due to you know war and blockade that they were supporting Assad in basically. Um, it should be said that during the United States' involvement in the Yemeni civil war, um, we participated actively in in acts that have been described as uh, war crimes. Right, uh, we basically did everything but kind of pull the trigger for the Saudis as they uh, bombed the Yemenis. Also, the United States helped directly with with 
ships um, in a blockade, uh, both air to the airport in uh, in Sanaa and uh, the port of uh, Al Hadeda, um, which which led to a lack of medicine and 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 a lack of food in northern Yemen where the Houthis live, and led to the starvation of literally tens of thousands of people. Right? I mean, uh, accounts differ, but it's conservative estimates are over a hundred thousand. It's pretty brutal stuff. Um, the Houthis basically survived uh, that siege and, and that blockade and are now in control of northwestern Yemen. Uh, so basically, that's that's why, right? Yeah. The, the Biden administration, I think, wanted to distance itself from the biggest humanitarian disaster that was currently going on. You, you did lead to, like, what changed Biden's mind to actively, like, start bombing Yemen. Now, uh, uh, within the past two or three days, he had been asked... Is it working? And I, uh, I, I, I'm getting the exact wording of his quote kind of wrong here, but he's like, is it working? Do you mean are the bombs working? Are they working in effect that the Houthis are stopping? No, but they're going to keep happening. My question for you is, with that Biden saying, whether you like it or not, we're going to keep bombing them, was this some kind of strong man approach? Or was this him shitting the bed, like being too old and like... You know, he, he's famous for gaffes in public speaking. Is this a gaffe or is this him trying to be like, you fuck with us, we fuck with you back? That seems to be happening to Biden basically every time he walks up to a mic, which is <laughs> he forgets that the answer that he that he's supposed to say and answers kind of honestly, which is in a way pretty refreshing, right? You had Trump who like knew nothing about foreign policy, could not give a shit at all. Um, walk up and just make something up about like basically the briefing he just received like 20 minutes earlier um and biden's kind of the opposite right he does have actual opinions about this shit like latent in his brain but then he just can't remember that he's supposed to walk up and lie so he's honest he's asked are the airstrikes working and his response is just so perfect and and honest right he says are they stopping the houthis no are they going to continue yes and I mean, if this if that's not emblematic of basically America's foreign policy since I remember <laughs> starting to pay attention to foreign policy, that's it, right? You're saying your your thesis on this. What's your thesis on all this? Uh, I mean, to be to be really really cynical. Yeah. Um, I think this is just a distraction. I think that th- things are so embarrassing with regards to Israel right now, and um, there's there's just so much traction being lost. Um. In, in in the United States, because I'll be honest, um, I don't I don't think that this kind of stuff pulls a wool over anybody's eyes internationally that actually gives a shit about any of this. Um, I think that this is quite literally just something else to talk about, um, to where we can argue about you know whether the whether the Houthis are are bad, who are these people, and and why are they doing this? Yeah. So in terms of a U.S. propaganda narrative, what is the narrative being pushed? And, and is it effective? I think the answer is yes. For, for those who don't, don't already have an opinion about the Houthis and, uh, and the Yemeni Civil War, which, let's be honest, is the vast majority of Americans, yeah. uh, and want to have an opinion about this, which is maybe the minority of Americans who give a shit about this enough to have an opinion. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think the answer is yeah, the, 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 the propaganda is working. But what that propaganda is, I think, is, is pretty interesting to think about. Uh, this is a really good example of how in the internet age, in the 21st century, um, you really get this kind of fractal explosion of, uh, of different propaganda for different flavors of liberal audience produced and consumed 
by that audience. And and I'll, I'll enumerate a couple, right? So you have on the, on the left-wing spectrum, because I live on, like, let's be honest, right? We, we live on Twitter, so we follow Twitter discourse yeah. and general internet discourse. Um, I'll enumerate them in like five levels, basically, from... Um, from least left-leaning, right, like most centrist or most conservative to like most uh, leftist, right? Th- these are the kind of uh, the, the general arguments that I'm hearing about the Houthis. So the first one is the, the most kind of conservative one is that the Houthis are just terrorists, right? And this this kind of relies on this is kind of referential to the whole. This is kind of referential to the Bush era. Um, they're, they're terrorists. They're Iranian-backed. You, you see that in most big headlines um, from um, large American newspapers and media, right? These guys are just Iranians. Iranians are bad. We already This is a reference to some uh, a group that you already know is bad. Um, and you know the terrorists are bad, right? So, so already, just in the headline, it's primed. And, by the way, if you agree with that, you don't really even need to read the article. We're bombing some terrorists again. Um, that's either... It's either acceptable or it's outright good. Yeah. Right? Um, the second one is a little bit more liberal, right? If you're if you're kind of a little bit questioning on the whole terrorism narrative back from when Bush was in office, then you can talk about how this is disrupting like global trade. This is an argument that liberals will make to uh, kind of ascribe uh, a neutrality to the market to say this this thing that that uh, by the way right is is in itself neutral but that everybody relies on right is being disrupted and that is trade right like and if it's not um you know your amazon package coming from china that's getting delayed because they have to go around africa instead of going through the suez because that's why this matters if it's not amazon packages then it could be fuel, it could be food, right? There's You can make the argument that somebody is going to be hurt because uh, they didn't get their, their shipment of, uh, of wheat, right, for two more weeks than it took uh, before, right? And, and the idea of piracy in general is still one that we, you know, I don't know, you might have, somebody might have seen the movie Captain Phillips and you're like, well, those, you know, those guys are, um, while it's uh, maybe understandable that they're poor and want to steal stuff, um, uh, that's generally bad. That breaks, you know, one of these kind of uh, rules that are larger than uh, politics itself, yeah. which is the kind of neutrality of international waters and trade, uh, despite the fact that, you know, if, if you're if you're from the United States, that's a, that's. That's a joke, right? I think it's very interesting. Uh, sorry to interject, but I think it's very interesting that Biden has walked back on a couple of things, both domestically and internationally, based on shipping. Like there was breaking the the train strike um, that happened around Christmas time because hey, we need to get these things shipped. We cannot have the economy stop around Christmas. So. You know, proclaiming to be the most pro-union president, can't get the pro act uh, to his desk, and he actively stops a strike. And then we see internationally he walks back his international actions with Yemen and the Houthis because of trade. In a way, I think that's a, a, a really amazing form of honesty from a kind of liberal structure as well. That one of the superseding realities of our foreign policy is um, keep the goods flowing. Yeah. Right. We, if, if the United States is an empire, if you believe that, well. One of the things that not only makes it an empire, but kind of internally justifies its um, its existence, um, is is the fact that it provides goods. You can't fuck with the treats, yeah. right? As, I mean, uh, as, as Matt Chrisman might say, right? Isn't that neoliberalism manifest? Uh, yeah, probably. I mean, this is this is the international vehicle by which consumer choice comes to you, 
right, is on a fucking container ship that has to go through the Red Sea, right? Or at least that's kind of emblematic of um, about what it is that uh, that the world order, right, that you're a part of and live in, what it guarantees to you. Yeah. So number three is just kind of a patent, like, equivocation, right? So if you, the the all the way down um, the kind of liberal spectrum to people who are willing to admit that the United States commits uh, some bad acts, right? Or that the United States' foreign policy is, uh, let's say, is in the Middle East is flawed, right? So you say, like, well, you know, the Houthis shot at a ship and we fucking bombed them, right? And that... Um, and that and that those are more or less equivalent in in act right there's a there's an attack on one thing and then there's an attack on the other and uh, and while you know that doesn't uh, that doesn't make the United States less bad um, well it doesn't justify the position of the United States in other ways um, it's it's a kind of a tit for tat um, call and response right when you're saying this it, it makes me think that like pacifism or at least the idea of being like i just i just don't want any innocent people killed it, it really does feel like a cop-out it feels like an easy way to not have to like face the grim reality of uh, uh of, of what war and foreign conflicts actually entail it makes me think about you know post october 7th when ever anyone would get in trouble for talking out of their ass and mostly celebrities when they they take a stand on an international conflict and then the internet would yell at them their defense is always i don't want any innocent people killed which is a dog whistle for i know dick all about actual foreign policy <laughs> i just want to put the right emojis in my twitter profile and uh go back to tweeting about sweet green I think those who lived during that period will remember supporters of or people within the Bush administration literally using that same argument, right? Like, we don't want innocent people to die. And it's like, yeah, but we're in Iraq already. You invaded a fucking country, right? Like, yeah. you destroyed their infrastructure, and now you don't want innocent people to die? The the purpose of that equivocation is to reset the timeline every single time it's said, right? So you say, like, well, I don't want any more people to die in response to this thing that's let's face it right this stuff only this stuff only occurs to people when the american machine is being criticized i've been in the position where um american media and the kind of zeitgeist of society is quiet about issues like this and i guarantee you just nobody cares right if you're if you're going to argue that uh, that that all those lives matter then when, when people retort that just all violence is bad and I support a, a solution with no violence, right? Yeah. That's not on the table. And we, would have, we wouldn't have arrived here if that was possible. Absolutely. Uh, so like the, the four, I th- I'd say the fourth level, and we're, we're a little bit even further down, and this is just a, a straight up kind of identity politics argument, but I've seen it a lot on Twitter, is that the Houthis are conservatives. I mean, some people would argue the Houthis are actual fascists, right? Which kind of dilutes the definition of fascism to me um i mean admittedly these are this is a this is a conservative ethno-religious militia right they're going to act like conservative and and nationalist ethnic militia you know you could you could kind of look into why that is and why there are no uh, let's say secular options uh, for people to fall into who are kind of resistive to outside forces in yemen there's a there's a rich history in that country and in the region but i'm not going to argue about whether it's true that there's uh, a child marriage in yemen i bet there fucking is right this is one of the poorest countries in the region do they have uh, child soldiers uh, a place that's been fighting uh, a sectarian civil war for the past decade you know what dude i bet there fucking are 
Is that a reason to write them off as an American um, while your government is actively supplying the Israelis with bombs to do a genocide? I don't know, man. The fifth level identified are like secondary effects. The idea is that if you glorify the Houthis, if you talk about them as, as people doing kind of anything good, right, R resisting the kind of uh, American foreign policy and Israeli action in the region, even if they're even if they're conservative, that this um, creates a kind of secondary effect in other places. If you had a, a Houthi flag, uh, if you had a Houthi bumper sticker on your truck, somebody might accuse you of anti-Semitism. And you know what? In the United States, they might have a fucking point uh, because on their vaporware-ass flag uh, from 2009 or whatever, whenever it was founded, there's, there is a, a five-line slogan in Arabic. Line three is death to Israel, and line four is a curse upon the Jews. Yeah, it's, it's Allah is great, death to America, death to Israel, a curse upon the Jews, victory to Islam. It's a it's a bad look. Right? Um, it's a bad look for sure. Not the best uh, PR campaign. Not the best PR campaign. Uh, Houthis are fucking canceled. The idea that saying nice things about the Houthis is somehow going to embolden anti-Semites in the United States. Um, I got news for you. Uh, those motherfuckers do not like the Houthis and this is not going to make them like them more. Yeah. I, I, I was going to pitch a little bit when you said that, like, bad look for the Houthis. Houthis are getting canceled. Maybe Houthis need a rebrand. Maybe they need to bring in a marketing expert. However, the Houthis have their own propaganda campaign going with the drone videos of them taking uh, taking ships. Do you find those to be effective? Um, extremely effective. I mean, the, so the, you asked earlier, right, like, why now? Why are we doing this? Um, the problem is that... Uh, resistance to Israeli action in Gaza, genocidal action in Gaza, is incredibly popular in the Middle East broadly and in the world broadly. The Muslim world is incredibly frustrated with its leadership, the leadership of states. And by the way, this includes resistance actors like Hezbollah and Iran that aren't affected by their positive relationship with the United States, at least, with their inaction. You could you could have an argument about whether or not those people can meaningfully do anything without you know basically starting World War III, um, but the Houthis are essentially the only group outside of Hezbollah that's done anything uh, to punish the Israelis to attempt to really put uh, a meaningful cost um, on their actions uh, in Gaza. And when you release a video capturing a ship, even if it's you know let's be honest, right the Stealing a sea-bearing car ferry is not going to be the difference between, you know, whether or not the Israeli state continues existing or not. But it's more pressure than basically anybody's put on them. So is that effective? It's tremendously effective, which I think has a lot to do with why we're bombing um, Yemen at the moment. This is, this is an enormous propaganda um, w for them in the region. It's, I think it's very bad for them internationally because uh, once you you know, get the ire of the United States on you, it's really hard to get it off, right? Once you get on the terrorist uh, registry, it's really fucking hard to get off. It's going to follow you for a long time, and it's going to be it's going to be painful. The Houthis say they don't care. They say they're, you know, um, uh, more than willing and, and uh, more than willing to fight for uh, the Palestinians, and, and they feel honored to be, you know, battling the forces that are supportive of Israel. Uh, but this is, you know, going to have a real cost uh, on them. And it's viewed as, uh, as, as a kind of righteous martyrdom. Right. So getting them to stop doing that is uh, is is in the interest of the United States on some level. 
Okay, man. Well, unless you have anything else to add, I want to thank you for that like fantastic primer and breakdown of the uh, Yemen conflict and the propaganda campaign surrounding it on both sides. Um, so it did good propaganda on both sides. Uh, I I really really enjoyed that um, as much as you can enjoy hearing about just like fucking the horrible hegemonic bullshit that the U.S. military machine pulls off. Um, yeah, I guess the lesson to be taken there is uh, don't fuck with trade. Or do fuck with trade, right? I mean, the you know, the, the, the Yemenis are getting bombed because that shit worked, right? Uh, because it did piss off the right people and it forced a response. They, they're, not, they're not incorrect when they say the reason that we're being targeted now is because we stuck a finger in the eye of, uh, of the United States and, um, and its kind of foreign policy aims. Yeah. Surprise, not surprise. I guess one of the things um, that that I kind of didn't think was going to be so valent is just how much traction you get out of um, out of just straight up calling somebody a terrorist again. For yeah. for a brief moment, I really remembered like the Bush admin. Yeah, I I thought we were kind of coming around into a uh, general consensus that terrorist is just a dog whistle for people who upset the machine like I, I i figured that we were in the internet age long enough to know that the difference between a terrorist and a freedom fighter is whether or not they add or detract from american goals like when does isis go from our our freedom fighting allies to our enemies and terrorists and the fbi's most wanted like when 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 does something like that happen and so yeah i i i it bums me the fuck out that we're back to just throw ter- throw the word terrorist out there, and that gets everybody to shut up. It is kind of darkly funny that that designation, like the all the baggage that that carried during the Bush administration, that we kind of culturally tried to get so far away from. I think during Obama, it really never left. No. So you get back into one of these, and we're just raw rawing. If if we if we actually end up with like troops on the ground, either in Israel or Yemen or anywhere in the region. Uh, while Biden's still president, I'd be so curious whether we get just like straight up rally the troops rhetoric like we used to. Do you remember how progressive it seemed for Obama to refer to ISIS as ISIL? To just be like, I'm going to call you what you want to be called. I'm not going to call it Syria. I'm going to call it the Levant. And it seemed like, ooh, Obama's like being so diplomatic to, well, I guess they're not terrorists. I guess they're just insurgents combatants Uh, wow and like how i'm embarrassed that i thought that that was progressivism to call to call your enemy by their desired names like oh okay uh yeah i mean don't don't forget that those those people are the kind of perverts that just love a good acronym (laughs) especially especially one that has a word that's like doesn't immediately come to mind right i don't know levant just just has that feeling of a of a a word that a smart guy would use (laughs) and by the way i i don't i don't want to uh i don't want to give the impression that we are in any way comparing uh um isis to the houthis uh they are not the same isis extremely bad uh houthis uh problematic but uh you know the Houthis are problematic, but I have a I have a, a real admiration for them. They're uh, they're incredibly tough. Uh, they've been through a tremendous amount, um, and they and they're going to continue to go through a tremendous amount. Yeah, I, however, will not be uh, uh, issuing support for the Houthis. <laughs> I am still ordering shit off Amazon, and this is really 
fucking my life up. It seems like the backbone of this podcast is like good take, bad take. Connor's the good takes, and I'm the bad takes, <laughs> I which I which I'm, I'm totally fine with. I don't even know if I, I if saying that like I'm for bombing the Houthis is a good take. Like I'm not for it. I think that while I don't necessarily, I have not read up as much on the Houthis as you have, so I don't necessarily want to say like I support them or I don't support them. Um, I, however, have a lot of respect for anyone with the wherewithal to know that in a global economy the way to hurt it the most is to fuck up trade they know how to hit the beast where it hurts and uh i have a a begrudging respect for anyone who could do that let's just say uh, i wouldn't want to praise anybody that the united states is designated as a global terrorist group (laughs) i also think it's just like i get frustrated when america does a blatantly obvious uh, uh, double standard like Biden criticizing Trump for, for bombing other countries without congressional approval he's going off and doing the same thing backtracking on uh, uh, reversing the designation of the Houthis just because it it makes him look bad in terms of supporting Netanyahu's you know genocide of Palestinians yeah that's kind of my stance on it it's I shouldn't say my stance is practice what you preach. That, that's just that's some like hayseed bullshit. Practice what you preach. Oh, we love the Houthis. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think that's why those equivocations fundamentally don't work. And, and maybe you know, um, if you're listening to this, you probably already kind of agree with us that uh, that it's it's pretty tired to equivocate some a group like uh, a group like the Houthis or a group like the Viet Cong or whatever with the United States. But, I mean, it's just it should be reiterated, right? Like, we are the richest country in, what, the history of, of, of human civilization, yeah. right? We're, we're a people that beats off constantly um, to our own flag and our own moral righteousness. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and for us to be doing what we're doing, supporting Israel, and for the Houthis to be the ones resisting it— um, you know, I'd say it calls a lot of that into question. You yeah. know, and we'll see. Uh, we'll see on um, with regard to the propaganda whether that's uh, going to work. Yeah, uh, it seems like uh, it seems like a lot of Americans are taking more umbrage with this than uh, I would have thought in years past. And uh, you know what? I'm again, just like Jan Six, I'm fucking here for it, brother. Yeah, <laughs> I'm also like really livid over the fact that we are so beholden to the whims of the Israeli government that we're willing to reverse our our stance on the Houthis and potentially bring this out into like a war that spans an entire region. It's it's not going to get simpler from here, folks. I, I Yeah, the, the the Iranians are kind of already responding. Um I mean, I I would generally ascribe it as a response to the bombing of the Houthis. The Iranians are already um have bombed uh locations in Syria and Iraq uh in their in their region kind of as a response. So you know, um, what, whether or not that is a kind of reciprocal action that they feel like they have to undertake um, or or an escalation that's going to cause a broader war, um, we'll see. But uh, but it's certainly not out of the realm of possibility. Right? Yeah. This is the kind of thing that escalates because um, because, you know, neither side won't neither side will back down. And the thing that we're ultimately defending is is what's going on in Gaza. And, you know, I just uh uh, can't can't look that in the face and uh, and not get angry. Fuck, that's the grim truth of it, man. Right there, I think you hit the nail on the head.
Well, Alec, my man, we got another one in the can. Uh, is there anything we need to say to the audience? Check the show notes. We're going to have links to some of the stories that we were talking about for sure. If you want to leave us a review, please. Unless you're leaving us a bad review, then fuck off. Come on. We want propaganda about our podcast just as much as we want propaganda to talk about for our podcast. We want a five-star campaign. Create a fake account and rate it again. Like, do that for us. I can neither confirm or deny that I'm already doing that on Apple Podcasts. <laughs> That's right. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Spotify. Um, we're on wherever you can get your podcast. The RSS link is out there. And yeah, I don't know what we're going to be talking about in the future. We're going to get back to doing movie reviews soon. Yeah, we should. Um, yeah, I, I, I should just say, uh, I'm sorry if my takes are bad and they upset you. Um, I'm probably not going to stop having bad takes. So Who's worse? The Houthis or Viper? <laughs> I mean, I think it's. I, I would give it to Viper. He's not a uh, internationally designated terrorist organization. But, uh, <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> once once the Houthis start dropping uh, SoundCloud albums, then it'll be a very easier oh, comparison. Dude. Like you said, we can't equate two horrible people. They're very different. <laughs> Y'all cowards don't even chew cot. <laughs> Comes full circle, brother. <laughs>